You are listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science as part of our Shaping the Post-Covid World series, a digested version of our live online public events. Career and Family, Women's Century Long Journey Towards Equity was recorded on Thursday, the 25th of November, 2021. A full version of this event is available to download via the LSE events website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome to the LSE for this online event hosted by the Department of Social Policy and the Department of Economic History. My name is Lucinda Platt and I'm Professor of Social Policy here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I'm really delighted to welcome today Professor Claudia Goldin, Professor Jane Humphreys, Dr. Berka Erjan and Dr. Eva Taseva to the LSE. The event today will take the form of an open discussion to discuss the themes of gender equity and couple equity as presented in Claudia Goldin's book, Career and Family, Women's Long Journey Towards Equity. So my book traverses 120 years from a time when college graduate women were able to have either a family or a career to right now when many women anticipate having both But while there's great similarity in ambitions, there's somewhat less, unfortunately, in eventual achievements. And the reason largely concerns the concept of greedy work and the relationship between gender inequality and couple inequity. So these are the two sides of the same issue for heterosexual couples. So when heterosexual couples give up couple equity, they increase gender inequality, both within the couple and within the economy, the nation uh, as a whole. My work concerns college graduate women and men because they have had the greatest opportunity to achieve what I call career. And the second thing is that career really is different from a job. A career is something achieved over time and a job is more of a spot position to earn a living. So aspirations and achievements of college women across the past 120 years or so really greatly changed. And the reasons for the changes vary with the period. So there was a transition from brawn work to brain work. There were huge changes within the home. And somewhat later, there was greatly improved ability of women to control their fertility But the way that work is structured and the persistence of various social norms mean that women are less able to attain both career and family. So the groups of college graduate women that I uh, describe in the book form what I call a succession of generations. So there are five distinct groups that can be discerned. And the first graduated college at the beginning of the 20th century, it achieved career or family, rarely both. The next had a job and then a family. The third had a family and then a job. The fourth, my generation, was the first to desire a career and a family, but did it as career, then family. And the fifth desires a career and a family and has succeeded, we'll see, to some degree. So beginning with group one, college graduate women first attained career or family. 50% of this group never had a birth or never adopted. About a third never married. 
Just a small fraction, though, were in the labor force if they were ever married. In group two, more college women began to aspire to have careers, but that didn't happen for a number of reasons. In group three, job opportunities improved. America was swept up in the post-war baby boom, early marriages, lots of kids. College women shifted to planning for family first, but then a job. Their employment was low when they were young. It greatly increased to almost three quarters when the kids were older. This really was progressive change since they found a way to have a job and a family. The order was family and then job. For group four, career then family became the goal for many. They delayed marriage and children. The pill and its dissemination to young single women enabled the delay of marriage and family and helped boost their investments in career. But the biological clock ran out on many. For group five, having seen what group four did, their goal is have both. And in fact, they achieved some, something better in the sense that 21% didn't have a kid by the time they were in their 40s. Marriage and family for group five are still being greatly, greatly delayed, but birth rates are actually up. You may be thinking that because of the large increase in college graduation rates, that most of these differences across these groups concerns selection into college. But the surprising finding is that selection really isn't that important. The elite changed along with the hoi polloi. Now, an important accompaniment to the transition across these groups is changes in customs and norms. Something called the General Social Survey has for some time asked respondents whether they believed children would likely suffer if their mothers worked. The agreement decreased for both men and women. The older norm, in fact, became more expensive to sustain as the earnings of women increased. But even though a succession of women has made progress on the journey to career and family, women's careers still often take a back seat to those of their spouses. The most recent group has expressed frustration and has placed the blame on many different things, such as discrimination, managerial bias, pay inequity, sexual harassment. And to measure their level of discontent, I've used counts of phrases about gender discrimination and sex discrimination in newspapers. There are two waves, the first in the 1970s and the second more recently. There's no question that there is classic discrimination and bad actors and biased workers, but most of the difference in earnings and promotions and the ability to have career and family is due to something else. And the new problem with no name, to paraphrase Betty Friedan, is the notion of greedy work. Working more hours or particular hours leads to greater rewards even on an hourly basis. In upper out jobs, more effort today produces hopefully the promotion later. But to have a family takes time, and it takes the time of at least one parent. For a couple to share the joys equally is costly. Now, for many highly educated couples with children, 
she's a professional who's also on call at home. And he's a professional who's also on call at the office. In consequence, he generally earns more than she does. And that gives rise to a gender gap in earnings, and it also produces couple inequity. And even if the couple wanted a 50-50 relationship, high earnings for a position with the less controllable hours would entice them to specialize. Both would have jobs, but one would have the less remunerative, flexible position. The point is that the gender gap in earnings is a symptom of career blockage. The cause of career blockage here is the high price of couple equity. So what are some solutions? The first would involve lowering the cost of flexibility. Another would involve reducing the cost of childcare and elder care. And the third would try to alter gender norms through possibly incentives. Let's take a deeper look at the first solution. How does one lower the price of flexibility? The simplest way is to create good substitutes between workers. IT could be used to pass information and hand off clients with little loss. Teams of substitutes could be created as they have been in areas like pediatrics and anesthesiology and veterinary medicine. Now, the tale that I have told was set in an era that I call BCE. And what I mean by that is before the COVID era. What does it tell us about the new era? So in mid-March 2020, we descended into an era I call DC during COVID. Those who could sheltered in place, worked from home. Fortunate children had online schooling and at-home help. Parental childcare doubled. In the age that we're in now, which I call ACDC, which is after COVID, but also unfortunately during COVID, schools are open by and large, but childcare time is still somewhat higher than before. One edge of a silver lining to these very dark times is that in the US at least, we have finally begun a national dialogue about caregiving. Another edge to the silver lining is that we have learned to use technology to work from home. And as long as it doesn't become a female enclave, it will serve to lower the cost of flexibility. Make the amenity less expensive to workers by making flexible work more productive. So prior to March of 2020, the reasons women were being held back from achieving career and family became clearer. And what was blocking the way was greedy work and the relationship between gender inequality and couple inequity, the two sides of the same issue. When couples give up couple equity, they increase gender inequality. Thank you very much, that was fantastic. Um, so I'm going to hand straight over to Professor Humphreys, who's now going to provide some comments or questions. Um, as an economic historian, I particularly welcome historical framing of, of um, career and family. Um, but most of all, I'm enthusiastic about the bringing together of family and labor markets to understand women's changing experience and ongoing inequalities. 
And the two issues that I'm, I'm um, concerned with here are, first of all, causation. How we think about the causation of the gender pay gap. It's importance, and by here I mean really it's relevance, it's relevance to all women. And the discussion of causation promotes issues around, can we change the way we work? And I think the discussion of relevance poses issues about, can we revalue caring? And I would argue that both these issues come up against the economics discipline itself and its market focus. So causation and the gender pay gap. Um, we used to rather blithely, rather um, indiscriminately rely on econometric analyses of the gender pay gap to identify causation. More recently, I think economists and economic historians have been backing off causal claims generally or really pursuing the nature of causality rather more carefully within econometrics. And you see this by in, in the gender pay gap literature by people stopping really talking about causes and talking about sources or drivers of the gender gap. Um, but I want to drill down a little bit further and say what lies behind these drivers. And I would argue that bias, alongside inequality within the home, lurks behind many drivers. So let me say, first of all here then, that the occupational segregation is associated with a, a significant part of the gender pay gap. And this then is thought of as reflecting women's choices. But as in fact, the book really carefully points out, there's many things go into women's choices. But I would also suggest that perhaps there's scope here for thinking about the devaluation of women's work, um, the systematic cultural devaluation of women's work that might actually feed back into these market valuations but what I really want to talk about is the labor market attachment and the history of individual workers, because, of course, this links in very clearly with Professor Goldin's long run story and the culmination of her story in greedy work. Here, the argument is choices. Again, greedy workforces couple specialization. We also hear arguments that this is a return to experience. So these are factors that underlie productivity. And again, we're back at how the market values women's work. So moving on, I want to now turn to the relevance or the importance of the gender pay gap. It's largest for high earners, we know that, for college-educated women, but that's because there's more scope if you earn at the top end of the distribution for there to be a gap between men and women. And college-educated women represent a large and increasing proportion of the labor force. Uh, women now, in fact, are more than 50% of college graduates in this country. Um, the gender pay gap is of much less relevance to women in other segments of the labor market. Does this then mean that working poor have little to gain from gender equalization? Well, I would argue not, and I would uh, suggest that this leads us back into thinking about the importance of caring within the family, because the unpaid care work that falls on women, perhaps disproportionately on poorer women, this is shared. This is something that brings college-educated women and other women in the labor force 
Um, it, they share this unpaid care burden. According to Age UK in 2017, the unpaid caring work, mainly childcare, done by grandparents was worth £3.9 billion per annum in the UK. So, but valuing caring work, of course, also then raises questions with market valuations. A care-led recovery could create more jobs than const a construction-led one. And B, um, probably uh, what we really need here is care to be seen as a big infrastructural inv investment um, and to, to, to try and promote a care-led recovery from the COVID pandemic. And that will be a, a, a useful legacy and a silver lining. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Lots of challenges there. I'm going to move straight on to uh, Dr. Tuseva. So I have points that I would like to raise for discussion. The first point is about solutions. So the book offers a hugely impressive analysis of the problem, but I felt that perhaps it's a bit reluctant uh, to propose solutions. But my first question is, why do greedy jobs exist at all? It seems that it's very good for employers to have substitutable workers because then they don't need to pay this high premium for longer inflexible hours. But the fact that this is not happening across all occupations, the fact that there are greedy jobs, maybe suggests that there are substantial costs for substitutability. So my question is, does this mean that the problem is unlikely to go away by itself? And related to that, how can workers, women, men, governments push firms to be less greedy if that doesn't happen by default? The second point uh, I want to raise is also about the pandemic's silver lining. So the book talks about the extra flexibility that we've gained during the pandemic. But as the book also uh, mentions, data from the US, and by the way, that's consistent also with data from the UK and other countries. So these data show that it's women who have borne the bigger brunt of care responsibilities during the pandemic. So my question to uh, Professor Goldin is, how do these fit with your optimism for the future? The next point um, I want to raise is about trying to understand what has um, contributed to uh, the value of greedy jobs soaring since the 1980s. So what has happened in the US and by the way also in the UK since the 1980s is that top income tax rates have fallen substantially and at the same time top income shares have increased dramatically. Cuts to top income tax rates have led to changes to the bargaining power of workers and greater individualization of pay and that has thereby led to increased remuneration at the top. So my question is whether uh, these cuts to top income tax rates have contributed to the increase in the value of uh, greedy jobs. Thank you very much. Um, so now over to you, um, uh, Dr. Ejan. So as a social demographer, what I have taken from this book is like I was fascinated by the three elements where demographers do care a lot about it. One of them is cohort change, which was very clearly uh, displayed in the book. And the second part is basically two things that demographers studied a lot, age at marriage, age at first birth, and their consequences on women's careers in general. There were two axes to discuss about the issues of work-life work balance, which was one side is basically that we have studied in the economics for a long time about the factors that are affecting labor supply and the greedy work framework um, 
makes us look more closer to the labor demand side. I have a, a three major points to make about the uh, books that I was interested to learn more about. One of them is a very clear, explicit focus and well-justified focus on the college-educated women. But we know that the preferences on the college education group that are non-elite and when the heterogeneity in that group increases over time. So I was a bit more interested in that part of the discussion because as a social demographer that we know that there's also a change in the norm around the child care. Child care language has changed. And then there's a little discussion about the college educated women actually driving that language change and ideological change. The requirements for raising children have gone up and that revolution itself is driven also by the college educated women, which is a very interesting revolution, which is very much untouched in the book because like parental ideologies and changes around the parental investments are implemented by the women whose opportunity cost is higher in the labor market. They do more of the reading to the children. They do more of the taking children to the clubs. They do more of the uh, intensive parenting and long breastfeeding and all other, all other factors where the opportunity cost is higher for the sake of perhaps um, privileging the next generation and transmitting part of that, that college education privilege relative to the rest of the distribution in the next generation. So it's somehow foregoing the current generation some sort of labor supply and earnings costs in favor of the next generation children's advantage in the, like in the future. Another aspect that I would like to hear more about is this uh, greedy work notion. And that is a very much specific in the theoretical postulation is to the college educated women and the high end of the occupational distribution. But the occupational segregation's weight in the earnings gap is higher in the non-college education group. And this brings me to the third factor, which is about self-employment. I am fascinated by Professor Golden's self-employment papers. There is this notion around the self-employment, which is uh, argued by a number of economists that they say it's one of the forms of work that women uses to ensure work and family life balances. This is not the case, of course, when you look at the credentialed self-employed, but for the rest of the self-employed population, like we see on average, they have higher number of children, almost in most, most advanced economies than the equivalent wage employees. And even in the book, I was quite puzzled and surprised to see that professional self-employed women, like the surgeons was the example, end up on average having more children than the comparable uh, wage employees. And the explanation is because they have higher income to start with, that they could afford childcare and other things. And one of the reasons why people become self-employed to have control over their income resources, as we know from the literature, but also um, for alternative mobility patterns. Although self-employment has been at the same time portrayed in European literatures as one form of instable, uncertain job category. So like it's when, when we discuss why Low, slow fertility has been observed a lot in the in Europe, especially in Southern Europe. One of the explanations have been coming from the macro studies is that like self-employment rates, unemployment rates, and they were all pulled together to, to say that um, like income uncertainty and labor market uncertainty have been increasing dramatically to, to then generate a very low fertility rates in Europe. And, and which was self-employment in that case was portrayed as an insecure form of employment. And that was, uh, the, the, the dimension of the occupations, which is not discussed in the book, the, the insecurity and uncertainty part of the part of the labour market. Thank you for listening. You can find our latest events via our Twitter at LSE Public Events and like our Facebook page 
at LSEPS. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website, www.lse.ac.uk forward slash events.